Lord, thank you for our time this morning to look at these covenants of the Bible, agreements, promises that you made to those that you've chosen. And I pray that you would give us um, a real love for your scriptures and, and teaching on this, and that it would uh, make us think about how you will fulfill these promises, make us think about the end times and, and what is to come in the future. Help us to put these things together, to to put away uh, teachings that might contradict your word and focus on what it has to teach us about not just your promises, but how you will work these out in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's talk about the biblical covenants. Uh, there's a lot to cover. We may not get it all done today. That's fine. Um, we've got one or two uh, classes in the future that I've left open that we can catch up. Now, we're still talking about the end times, but how you understand these covenants will help you understand the end times. And most of the debate about the kingdom comes down to how people understand the Abrahamic covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant's a legal uh, agreement by God that he makes. It's an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man. And it stipulates the conditions of the relationship. All of these covenants we're looking at are made by God. Uh, most of them are unconditional. There's, a, there's one that we'll look at that's conditional. But most are unconditional. And, and it's God bringing it about. It's God making the agreement to begin with. God's the one who uh, takes the action to fulfill it. Uh, it's all of God. It's God's grace, really. These covenants are, are God's grace. We're not talking here, though, about covenant theology. This can be confusing. We're talking about covenants, not the term, phrase, covenant theology. Who's heard of covenant theology? Anyone? A few people? Okay. So we're not talking about what's often called this. And, and by the way, I put these slides up um, on the website every week under slides if you go there. So uh, if you need to review these, I'm going to go pretty quick to some of the verses. If you ever want to go back and look at those, they're there on the website. Uh, this term right here is used uh, since 16, 1700s to refer to these three covenants that God has put in place. And so covenant theology is designed around these three covenants, the covenant of works, covenant of grace, and the covenant of redemption. And this is found throughout Reformed theology since not really Calvin and Luther. They didn't say much about this. It came about in the next generation. As people try to figure out how does God accomplish things that he wants to accomplish with mankind. And so they said that the covenant of works was an agreement that was made with Adam, and it was uh, salvation was based on works and merit, that Adam failed this covenant, and Jesus comes and fulfills the covenant of works on behalf of the elect. Does that sound right? Sound wrong? What do we do with that? Is this something we can agree with? All of these covenants will have language in them that is right. It's just, you know, all of it, I don't think, is right. And we're going to see that the word covenant needs to be in the Bible if we're going to say God made a covenant with somebody. So can we find God saying something in Scripture where he made a covenant with Adam? No, he just tells Adam, don't eat from the fruit of the, uh, in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. And go and do these things. Go and, go and uh, multiply and fill the earth. Take care of the garden and cultivate it. It's just commands that God gives. God's not making a covenant every time he gives commands. God can give commands to anyone. So the word covenant is not there. Uh, I don't really have a problem with kind of this idea that 
Adam failed. But we can't say he failed in the covenant when there wasn't a covenant stipulated. He certainly failed, though, in his task. And that Jesus came to fulfill what Adam couldn't do. Again, though, uh, it's going to be a different covenant that Jesus is enacting, is bringing about. That's called the new covenant, which is the last one in this series on the covenant. So uh, I would, and our church would not teach uh, a covenant of works. Even many people who are calling themselves covenant theologians would not agree that there was a covenant of works. A very famous Scottish uh, Presbyterian who taught at Westminster in Philadelphia named John Murray has a series of textbooks that says he can't find a covenant of works uh, in Genesis. So he doesn't want to use that terminology. We're also not talking about the covenant of grace. Uh, Covenant theology says that after Adam, salvation is still based on works, but that people can no longer be saved on their own efforts. The elect need to be saved by grace, by believing in Jesus, who fulfills the covenant of works on behalf of those who believe. So if you haven't heard this, it's okay. It's going to sound confusing. If you have heard this, I need to bring it up because it's very popular. A lot of times when people become uh, Calvinistic, They'll just adopt what their favorite pastor or theologian teaches on this. And they think, well, if if I believe in God's election, God's predestination, then I also have to agree with all these other things. And that's not the case. These things aren't necessarily chained up together. You can believe in election and not in covenant theology. Here, again, some language uh, that's a problem based on works. I would say God's salvation in the Bible is always by grace. From Adam to Revelation 19. It's not anywhere indicated that a person can be saved, will be saved, based on works. Yes, uh, Jesus lived a perfect life, but we don't see God ever say, if, Adam, if you do these things, then you will always uh, have salvation, always have, you know, that could could be up and down. Did Did Adam lose his salvation? When he sinned, many, myself included, would believe that, no, God came and he killed that animal, and that was a sacrifice, and that uh, God forgave them, of course, and they repented, but they still had to suffer the consequences. Anyway, moving along, covenant of grace, again, uh, not explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Uh, They're going to say that these are the Mosaic plus the New Covenants, and those are separate. We'll look at those. Uh, But they would say that's what the covenant of grace is. Now, similar language, I could agree with this. Does it say in the Bible that the elect need to be saved by grace, by believing in Jesus? Everybody with me on that? That's in the Bible, right? I've been preaching a series on that. It's also in Ephesians 1, right? Jesus fulfills not the covenant of works, but the sacrifice of for sins, that's a little bit different. That's not talking about necessarily a covenant of works on behalf of those who believe. So we could agree with, I, I could agree with some of that. Again, though, not a covenant where these two are combined and smashed together. And then the last one, many don't even uh, think that this is one of the covenants. There are usually uh, two covenants mentioned, but they would say covenant of redemption. Members of the Trinity covenant together before time to save the elect, with each member of the Trinity having a role in their salvation. Okay? Can we say that there's uh, Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father do save the elect? 
and that each one has a role in their salvation? Yeah, just see the sermon today. Uh, we're talking about that. See the sermon the last few weeks, right? The Father elects, the Son comes to redeem, the Holy Spirit regenerates, seals, and dwells, does many things. So this is good, good, but does it say anywhere in the Bible that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made a legal binding agreement together called the covenant? You won't find it. And it's why a lot of covenant theologians say, no, this is, isn't in the Bible, so we shouldn't use it. We shouldn't use it. So that's just a brief overview of these three. Um, some question this one. Many question this one. And so you're just kind of left with this one, which I think is a confusion of two other covenants, the Mosaic and the New. So when you hear this term, research it, think about it. Uh, just because it's your favorite preacher's preferred way of thinking of the covenants doesn't mean it's right. Study the Bible. Does it say anything to Adam about a covenant? Is there anything about the Trinity making a covenant? I don't think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have to make a legal binding agreement. They are each holy. They are each going to keep their word. They don't have to do that. So, Let's talk about the covenants actually mentioned in the Bible. A true covenant theology, we're going to call it that, starts with actual biblical covenants. We want to see the word covenant mentioned. If it's important enough for God to make an agreement, He will use the word in the Bible. And he will stipulate things that go along with the covenant. What he's going to do. And sometimes he'll tell um, the other person that he's making an agreement with what they need to do. So here they are. There's six in the Bible. So if we're going to be truly biblical in our covenant theology, we're going to go with these six. Noahic. Who's that made with? Noah. Which also goes to mankind. Because Noah's restarting the human race, basically, right? Abrahamic. It's a hard one here. What is it, Brenton? Abraham. And we'll just put Abe plus his descendants. So Israel plus Gentiles, which will come into the church, which are only saved Gentiles and only saved Israel. All right, uh, Israelite, usually this one's called the Mosaic Covenant. It's technically not correct, but it's given to Moses, but it's for who or whom? Israel. And where does it take place? Sinai, Sinai. So it could be called the Sinaitic because that's where it's given, Mount Sinai. Uh, Israelite's probably the best term for it because it's made, if we're going by who it's made with, Noah, Abraham, Israel, that's the best term, but we almost always call it mosaic. So everybody calls it that. So I, I don't want to mislead you and tell you these other names without reminding you that it's usually called Mosaic. And then Priestly, who's that made with? John, who's Priestly Covenant made with? The priest. The first first one of the line that it's made with? What was his name? Phineas. Phineas uh, plus his descendants, right? Uh, descendants. Davidic, who's that made with? David, plus his descendants, and the new covenant. This one kind of gets a little tricky because you might not have thought of it. Like the verses we'll, we'll look at teach us, but the new covenant's given first to Israel. We're going to see that twice in the Old Testament. But we know when Jesus comes, 
He ratifies it with his death on the cross. And who then can also come in? Hmm? Gentiles. Gentiles. So, Jews and Gentiles, but only through faith, of course. All of these have to be through, through faith. That's the channel. But it, it's kind of a fulfillment of this promise right here. It is. It is not just kind of, but it actually is. But it's not exactly the same as far as the covenant is concerned. So let's break these down and look at them individually. Uh, hopefully we'll get through the Abrahamic today. Uh, the ones that are huge, that are under debate, are Abrahamic, and then Mosaic, and exactly what is the new covenant. And, and then in the Davidic covenant, is it still going to be fulfilled upon the earth? That's the question there. So there's, there's some theological debate. This one, John, what happens to this one? This gets forgotten, right? Nobody talks about it. And it's in the book, but it's just, sometimes it's forgotten. It's rather small covenant compared to the others. Okay, let's look at the first one. Noahic covenant. Noahic covenant comes about after the flood. Now behold, God says, I myself. So whenever God says that, I myself do establish my covenant. It's telling us who's going to bring it about, who's going to make it happen. He's going to establish it with you, with Noah, and with your descendants after you. Who's the descendants of Noah? Everybody. All of us. Jews and Gentiles. We can't say this is just for the Jews. Yes, the Jews do come from Noah, but so do the Gentiles. There's no one else around when Noah uh, is alive after the flood. It's him and his family. So everyone's coming for Noah at this point. With every living creature. So it's not just a covenant made with mankind, but also the creatures, uh, the ones that he put on the ark to replenish the earth. The birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you. Of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I established my covenant. Again, we're seeing that word used. It's, word, it's a word in Hebrew. It's translated into English, what we call a covenant. We want to see that. When there's a covenant, we can't just make up covenants. We want to see the word covenant. So God's establishing it. God's doing it. And all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So what is he promising in this covenant? It's right here. He's not going to destroy the earth again like that. In other words, it's a, an affirmation that you don't have to worry if tomorrow God's going to flood the earth and you know we're, global warming is going to heat up with all the ice and, and it's going to melt the ice and we're going to be underwater here in the next 50 years. I think somebody already predicted we were going to be underwater, right? Who was that? Was that a previous presidential candidate? Al Gore? So, yeah, we can, we can do things to harm the earth. I'm not doubting that. But God is saying, look, I'm never going to bring this about. I promise you. He's establishing it. He's not going to flood the earth. He's not going to wipe out the earth again like that. Now we do know it'll come in the end with fire that will wipe out the earth, but that's later in Scripture. He's promising here that he's not going to flood the earth. And this is a sign. He's going to give a sign between himself and every living creature, including the descendants, the humans who descend, everybody who descends from Noah. All the successive generations. So who's it given to? Everybody. Until the earth ends. He's going to put a rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. 
It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So people are going to be concerned after the flood. I mean, wouldn't you? One day it starts raining and everybody dies and every living thing dies. They're going to remember that for generations. All cultures around the world have a flood myth where they think that the, the flood, it's not a myth because it came, but they develop it into sort of their own theology. They all know that the flood came. All cultures have some sort of ancient record of a flood. They're going to be worried every generation. Is God going to do this again? So he's, he's saying, no, I'm not, and I promise I won't, and the rainbow is going to be there. So when you see those clouds and you're worried, is it ever going to stop raining? Just remember the rainbow is a sign to help you remember that I'm not going to flood the earth again. So when the uh, bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the Noahic covenant is the first one mentioned in the Bible. It's made with everybody. It's made with even the creatures. And it serves as a foundation for everything else God's going to do. He can't bring about these other covenants the other plans that he's got for history and for mankind, unless he first says, I'll never again flood the earth. I'll never again flood the earth. Now, unfortunately, people have taken the rainbow and used it um, wrongly. And I like this Babylon Bee. Y'all follow the Babylon Bee online? It's kind of a humorous, uh, what do you call it? Not sarcasm. Satire. And so they had this one, because Google, I guess, had a rainbow for Gay Pride Month and And uh, Babylon B says, you know, look, Google celebrates the Noahic covenant. Uh, The rainbow was given as a promise to never flood the earth after a great judgment. So it's probably not the best idea for sinful lifestyle to go around portraying something that happened right after God's judgment before. But moving on, Abrahamic covenant. So Noahic covenants given to all mankind. Now we come down to Abraham. So if you're following in Genesis, uh, there's a, a family tree all the way down to Abraham. And at the end of Genesis 11, I think, Abraham's introduced, or Abram. And uh, God just shows up in Abraham, Abram's life and says, here's what I'm promising you. How we interpret this covenant, though, is going to affect our eschatology, which is in times view. Some of the things we've been talking about, and certainly what we're talking about next week or the following weeks, uh, will be affected by proper interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant. Is there going to be a kingdom upon the earth? Is Christ going to reign as the Davidic king upon the earth? Will Israel be a nation? Will, will Christ reign from Jerusalem, literally upon the earth, from Israel, Will there be 12 tribes again in the land? Uh, What's going to happen in the tribulation? Will there be an antichrist? Will there be a new temple built in the tribulation? Will there be a temple in the millennial kingdom? All of these things often will be determined by how we interpret this covenant. It doesn't have to be because there's other passages that mention it, but usually we'll come down to this. The view of the nation of Israel, the view of the church, are these two things equal or not? Are they the same? Or are they different? I thought I would have a book in for the bookstore. It's called um, 
has the church replaced Israel? But it didn't come in this week. It'll be probably in next week. I was going to show it to you guys. We'll talk about it next week. But it's by Dr. Michael Vallock. And uh, he has a good, it's his dissertation that he put into a book form. And he shows that the church has not replaced Israel. And I know we've talked about this in our class before, but the church has not replaced Israel. And mainly it's because of these covenants here. And some people that hold to baptizing babies, pedo-baptism, some, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, found that belief in the Abrahamic covenant and the circumcision that God tells Abraham to do for him and his offspring. And they transfer that over into the New Testament and the baptism of infant. We've already talked about baptism, so we won't go into this much, but when they're looking for, where does it say anything about baptizing babies? Uh, a big argument is, well, it's like circumcision with the Abrahamic covenant. Questions on that before we go too much further? All right, so here's, here's what God says to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, now, did Abraham do anything? Get God to talk to him here? Did he do anything? I mean, was his family a godly family? Was he, was he from a family of Jews? No, he's from what we would say Gentile, right? The first Jew was a Gentile before God made him a Jew. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great so you shall be a blessing. Now, he doesn't use the word covenant here. He doesn't yet enact what we would call the Abrahamic covenant. But he's pointing to it. He's foreshadowing it. And what God's doing here is just making promises. Right? These are promises. Abraham doesn't even know who this God is. And he's making a promise to Abraham. God is. His, his father worshipped idols, it says in the Bible. And now... Abraham's going to be blessed by God. So he does it. The fact that he goes means that he shows faith. Paul talks in the New Testament how Abraham uh, was saved based on faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. But later, we're going to see more language here. Genesis 12, 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So now, another reminder of descendants, another reminder of land. So Abraham builds an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. So we're already seeing faith here. Genesis 15.8 On that day, the Lord made a covenant. So there it is. So before that, what was it? I would just call it a promise. God made a promise. He keeps his promises, of course. Not every time God makes a promise that they call that a covenant in the Bible. But here he says, it's a covenant. So now we have the second one mentioned in the Bible by name. And it's a covenant with Abraham. And his descendants, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now in Genesis 15, right around this passage is where he goes and remember uh, Abraham prepares the sacrifice, he splits them in two. And then God puts a deep sleep on Abraham and, and the, a torch with great darkness around it goes through, symbolizing God, it goes through those split animals. And that's God ratifying the covenant. But we see already that a big part of this covenant is land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the river Euphrates. John, you're good with Middle East uh, geography? 
Is that where the nation of Israel boundaries are today? Has, has there ever been a time in history where Israel has been from the Euphrates to the river of Egypt? As far as John knows, there's not. Anybody else? Yeah. David and Solomon are the closest, the closest. Let's look at a satellite for today. So here is Israel today. And really it's not even that, right? Because there's all these little Palestinian areas carved out. But that's generally the boundaries of Israel today. God says to Abram, I promise to give you and your descendants, or his descendants specifically, the land from the Euphrates River. So here it is here, Euphrates. And it kind of takes off up there. But most people would say you would cut over to the ocean there. I saw one map where somebody was arguing that it included all of modern-day Turkey. But I think we can at least be safe here. This is conservative. Now, most people think the river of Egypt is what? The Nile. If it was the Nile, then that's going to be down here. So I'll put that in red. That's pretty big. Probably it's not the Nile. It could be the Nile. It just says the river of Egypt. But there's a wadi here, a flooded valley that, that is like a river in the rainy season, but it's dry during the dry season. And so that would be here. We could just continue to go down a certain amount. So at least this right here. right? And this is modern day Israel. And the reason I mention that is to show you, first of all, that even today, it's not been fully given to Israel. Because some people will say, well, God's already restored them and given them that promise, so he's not going to do it in the future. Others will say, no, under David and Solomon, that was the height of the kingdom. There's nothing else to look forward to with Israel. They were rejected, taken into captivity. Christ came, they rejected him, they're done. But God said from the Euphrates to either here or maybe the Nile River. The point is, they've never received this. Even when they come into the land from Egypt, they start conquering, and what happens? They get lazy, and they don't finish. If you were with us in our men's Bible study, women's Bible study on 1 Samuel, who are they always fighting? The Philistines. Why are there Philistines in the land? Because they settled down, they got lazy, some of the tribes didn't do their part and finish off the fighting, and they let these cities exist, the Canaanites, and they continued to deal with them. That was God's judgment on them for not doing what he said. He said, drive them out. They got lazy. They, they tolerated them. And eventually those Philistines, Canaanites, began to attack back and, and conquer territory. So they've never had all of the land promised to Abraham. But in the future, God's got to, if that's what his promise is, is he going to stop? Paul, Paul says in Romans 11, no, it will be fulfilled, the promises that he made to the Father. So we have to ask when, if it hasn't yet, then when is the most likely time? And we'll get to it when we talk about the millennial kingdom. It'll happen in God's timing. and So my, the main point of that is going to be, there is a time when God will fulfill this one. He's going to fulfill the Davidic covenant fully and the priestly covenant fully. I think that's in the millennial kingdom. We'll, we'll continue to look at that over the next few weeks. He continues here talking to Abraham, though. Genesis 17. 
Now when Abram was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. So again, mentioning the covenant. And I will multiply you exceedingly. Because he's, he's worried here, right? He doesn't have any children. How are my descendants going to inherit this land? How am I going to be blessed? Well, God says, I will do it. He reminds him, I will do it. So Abram fell on his face. God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. So he continues in verse 5. No longer shall you be called Abram. You shall be Abraham, for I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. He's got no kids now, right? How is he going to be the father of a multitude of nations? I've made you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the, their generations for an everlasting covenant. So there will be some today that will say the Abrahamic covenant has been replaced or it's, it's no longer needed. It's been, um, they broke it. They broke the Abrahamic covenant. Well, it's everlasting, which means it will always be like that, eternal. To be a God to you, so he's going to be their God and your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land, so another promise of the land, and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. The land is going to always be yours. Now, when we see everlasting, that doesn't mean that every generation and every ruler of Israel will have the land. What it means is, Eventually, I'm going to give you this, and it will happen into eternity. Because even here, this promise that he makes with Abraham, does Abraham get all that land? Does Abraham have all these descendants? He has one son of the covenant, right? He has Isaac. That's it. There's not a lot of descendants yet. He doesn't get the land. What happens to his descendants? They go to Egypt for 480-something years. So Abraham does not promise anything. Abraham does nothing. He doesn't, he doesn't have to do anything. This is God doing it all. God doesn't require him to. Now, of course, it comes about through faith. But notice when God says, here's my covenant, he does not say, I will wait to see what you will do. Then I will bless you. God just shows up and says, here's what I'm going to do. And then Abraham responds through faith. It's like the Bible. Here's the Bible. It tells us what to do. It tells us who God is. But we don't get the benefits and blessings talked about in the Bible unless we have faith. Faith is the channel by which God brings about his promised blessings. So here's the three things that the Abrahamic covenant does. It makes individual promises to Abraham and his family. Uh, it makes national promises to his descendants, which we'll later know that's called Israel. And universal promises to all the nations. Let's go back there. I kind of skipped over it here. Uh, Genesis 12. I'll make you a great nation. So that's his descendants that will be called Israel. I will uh, bless you with the land. I will bless you here. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. Oh, that's why we didn't cover it. Didn't have it in there. Verse 3. Verse 3 here talks about all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's part of the promise. Israel's going to forget that later, right? They're going to focus on these two things, and they're not going to like that one. But God will bring these things to pass. He already has with Christ coming and 
bringing Gentiles into the church. Okay, so who are Abraham's descendants? Well, in the original language, and, and it comes over into the New Testament as well, this is called Abraham's seed. Seed is the word, if you have an older version of the Bible, it often says seed. And the reason that uh, our English translations will even use it, because Paul picks this up in Galatians, and he talks about the seed of Israel. So seed is just descendants. Seed, your seed will be your descendants. And let's talk about the ways that term is going to be used in the Bible. There's a special natural seed. These are his physical descendants of Abraham through the line of promise of Isaac and Jacob. So the Jews. Offspring is another term we can use of of descendants or seed. The offspring which comes from Abraham are his direct line, the Jewish people. All the Jewish nation that comes out of Egypt is a direct descendant of uh, Abraham. There's also just the natural seed, natural descendants, but they aren't specially blessed. Who are those? Well, he had two other women that he had children with. This was his uh, wife's servant, and this was his second wife after Sarah died. So he had children, but they're not going to be especially blessed. They're not the elect. They're not chosen by God. We don't even know uh, what Keturah's children, what happened to them. Uh, Hagar, what's, what's, what was her son? Ishmael, who becomes the father of the Arabs, who eventually becomes the Muslims that we know today, uh, Arabic Arabs. Ishmael is their father. And so the animosity between the Jews and the, and the Arabs and the Muslims goes way back to um, Ishmael and um, Isaac. So there's natural seed here. That's just his kids. But it's really the special, the, the, the ones God has chosen that will be the rest of the story of the Old Testament. There's also, though, in the New Testament, picked up a spiritual seed. Because remember, in, in um, the Abrahamic covenant, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so even though the Jewish nation is done away with in 70 AD, you still have ethnic Jews. And you still have Gentiles who are believing in Christ through faith. So Paul picks up this idea here. And then you even have in Galatians 3.16, the ultimate seed, Jesus. So the Bible teaches four different kinds of descendants. Right? You have just his children. Then you have the special children through the line of Isaac and Jacob. Then you have spiritual children, all those who come to faith in Christ. And then you have the ultimate child, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What we can't do, and what some people do, and the reason I bring this up, is because people say, there it is, that's his seed. Forget about that, forget about that. Because doesn't Paul say right here in Galatians 3.16 that Jesus is the the seed? Let's go to Galatians 3.16 and look at it. Now the promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Singular. He does not say two seeds, Paul says, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. So you Gentiles, he's, he's your seed, essentially. He was given to you by God through Abraham. He is the seed singular. So Paul's trying to make a point to the Gentiles, right? He's promised to you as well. He's promised to you as well. Don't think this is just for the Jews. 
Okay, what's the point of Galatians? Stop trying to live like a Jew under the law. You don't need to live under the law because God's also sent Jesus for the Gentiles. And you don't have to live under the Mosaic law. So he is singular as well. Uh, let's go back. Let's go to 329 here. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So there is more than just the idea of one descendant, right? There's also spiritual descendants. And we cannot forget he made promises to Abraham and his special natural descendants as well. It goes back to the idea that he will accomplish those promises. They're not just going to get erased, right? Now that Jesus has come, God's not going to say, you know what? Scratch that. Right? That's what we do when we mess up, right? We mess up. God didn't mess up. He's going to do everything he said, everything he said for these groups. It just hasn't happened yet. All of it hasn't happened yet. Particularly, uh, this first one hasn't happened yet because Jesus says there's going to be a time of the Gentiles. Paul said there's a time of the Gentiles. Then all Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. How does he bring about number one, the promises he made to number one? Through number four. How does he bring about the promises he makes to number three? Number four, well, through Jesus, right? So when we say God will fulfill his promises to Israel, we're not saying like John Hagee sometimes says, and then he races it in his books. We're not saying God will save Israel and God will save everybody through Jesus. Two ways of salvation. It's not what we're saying. That's, that's false. The Bible says there's only one way to be saved. It's through faith. Through faith in the Messiah, either the Old Testament waiting for God to fulfill his promises through the Messiah, or New Testament Christians looking back to what Jesus did on the cross for us. But John Hagee says, well, you can be born a Jew and be saved, or you can be a Christian. Then he got in trouble for that, and he took it out of a few of his books. But there are others who believe that kind of silliness too. So is the Abrahamic covenant unconditional? Or is it based on something that Abraham and his descendants will do? That's another argument to sort of uh, to mark out the Abrahamic covenant and say, you know what, God's not going to fulfill what he promised to Abraham and his descendants because they disobeyed and they got taken into captivity. Are there any conditions given by God when he gave the covenant? We looked at the verses, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, 17. God never says, you do these things, I'll bless you. You don't do these things, I'll take it away. Now, he will say that later. When will he say that? In the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant. He doesn't say this here. This is what's called a, an unconditional covenant. There are no conditions. God will do it. Now, to be a beneficiary of it, of course, it has to be through faith. But when God shows up, he just says, here's what I'm going to do. And it was solemnized by God himself. In human covenants, you make an agreement. So when a new member joins, when you guys that are members join, you agreed to follow biblical commands. You agreed to the one another's. You agreed to our what's called our membership covenant, which is the one another's of Scripture. Love one another. Serve one another. You agreed to those things. We made an agreement. Or you make a, a covenant in marriage, right? At least biblical marriage, both spouses should agree to make that covenant. Not so in this covenant. God does it himself because he's the only one, Paul says, that, that he could, the only person he could swear by is himself and he makes it himself. He passes through the animal pieces in Genesis 15. Abraham did not pass through the pieces. In fact, I think 
God puts Abraham in a deep sleep to show us Abraham did nothing. He's over there, passed out. How does Abraham even know what God did to write it down or pass it to Moses someday to write it down? I guess God told him afterwards, but Abraham did nothing. It's not Abraham, but God who is responsible for the ultimate fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what AC means. Abrahamic covenant. Well, he thought it was a dream, but God was actually doing it. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess he saw through. God made him passed out so he could look through that vision. See it. It's an eternal and everlasting covenant. Later confirmation in the Bible tells us that. Jeremiah 16, 15. What's happening in Jeremiah? Are they obeying and doing great? What's happening? They're about to go away into captivity. They're about to be destroyed. They're about to be taken prisoner. They're disobeying and they're worshiping idols. In the midst of all of that, God says, As the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their land, their own land, which I gave to their fathers. Fathers here is almost always in the Bible referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who gets renamed Israel. That's where we get the name of the nation Israel. So even in the midst of their worst rebellion, God still reminds them he's going to fulfill this. He's going to bring them back to their own land someday, and he's going to give it to their fathers. Well, he does bring them back to the land. He does bring them back to the land, but again, it's not the land that was promised to Abraham. So we're still waiting for ultimate fulfillment. And Hebrews 6, 13 through 18, when you combine it with Genesis, which we won't look at, you can read on your own there, declares that the Abrahamic covenant is immutable. The author of Hebrews is just kind of making an, um, an analogy here. And he says the new covenant basically can't be changed, just like the old one that he made with our fathers can't be changed. That's what immutable means. can't be changed. God's not going to undo it. And then the last point I'll make on that, the unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant means that God will bring the fulfillment of the covenant. Now here's what's, here's what's key we have to understand. It does not mean every person, everyone that's a Jew, or every generation will experience the benefits of this covenant. Since a person or a group's relationship to the covenant is based on faith. That's what I've been saying. It's, it's through faith. Thus, there can be a conditional element, a piece of it, conditional element to an unconditional covenant. God's going to fulfill the covenant in the long term, but one's connection with it happens through faith, based on faith. So Abraham had faith. Isaac had faith. Jacob had faith. Did every descendant after that have faith? No. You could even argue that one of the reasons God hasn't brought it about fully yet is because most of Israel is rebellious. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans 11. They're under a time of disobedience so that the Gentiles might be blessed. In other words, he says, don't get prideful, but they're under disobedience, so right now God can save, will save all these Gentiles. Later, it's going to be flipped in the tribulation. The Gentiles will, as a group, rebel against God, and he'll start saving uh, more Jews, all Jews by the end when Christ returns.
it's going to be similar to the Mosaic in that sense, that there's a conditional element. The difference is God promises to Abraham to bring these things about, and the Mosaic covenant is completely different and is not a land promise, is not a promise to all of Abraham's descendants. And it's not unconditional. This one is. So if you can remember one thing about the Abrahamic covenant, or two things really, it's made to Israel, and it's unconditional. All right, let's start on the Mosaic. This is a big one. This is one where most Christians, I think, uh, misunderstand. This is one where whole shelves of theology, theology books are written to deal with this. What is the Mosaic or Israelite covenant? Well, one Old Testament scholar said, simply God's revelation of the law to Israel. But just because it's law now, he says, it was an act of supreme grace. Don't think it's just law, but it's, it's actually God's grace and a unique sign of privilege. So what we're going to see today and the next week is that there's grace and the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant, the, the reason we call it Mosaic Law is because with this covenant, God gives a very extensive law from, from Exodus 19.5 through the end of Deuteronomy. All the commands that Israel is to obey. That's what's part of the Mosaic Covenant. God makes an agreement with them. They respond and agree to it. Then he gives them his law. He gives them his law. So often when we talk about the Mosaic Covenant, we're just talking as well about the Mosaic Law. But it's grace. Why is it grace? Why is it grace that God tells a people that's his people what to do? Why is that grace? Who's got the answer? Gives us guidelines. And why is that important? Why are guidelines important? Why do you, to know how to please God, right? To know how to please God and separates them. Separates them, that's right. So it, it teaches us how to please God. We, we, we take that for granted today. But in ancient times, they didn't know how to please the gods. So they were always kind of freaking out about, like, what do I do so the gods don't get angry with me? God says, you know, in, in four books of the Pentateuch, he tells them how to live, how to please him. And it separates them because no one else is doing that. And also it does what? What, it, what happens when you tell your children what to do and what not to do? Teaches them right from wrong, which is kind of pleasing God, but also it keeps them from getting hurt. Keeps them from breaking the boundaries and hurting themselves. Even as Christians, we can still do things that are sinful and we get disciplined for it by God. Hebrews 12 talks about that. Well, here it is. Uh, before God gives it to him, he says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments. So what's happening here? They have to obey. They've got to keep his commandments or his covenant, which is going to be full of commandments. Then, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that was their purpose. God separated them. And he's going to make them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That was their job as a nation. These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. 
Is this covenant going to be conditional or unconditional? It's got to be conditional. Why? Because they first have to obey. They've got to do it. There are the conditions right there. If you do what I say, he's, later he's going to say, if you do what I say, blessings. If you don't do what I say, curses. Make a choice. Make a choice. And they agree here. And we'll look at this verse later. But they agree here to do it. Yes, O oh Lord, we will do whatever you say. We'll do whatever you say. They make that agreement. So it's not just God giving the covenant, but they are also agreeing to it. Whereas Abraham, you could say not only did he not have to agree to it, he was doubting it much of his life, wasn't he? Where these, these Israelites, oh yeah, we'll do whatever you say. Most of that generation dies in the wilderness because they didn't obey God. Now, it is connected though to Abraham because it's with his descendants. It's with his descendants. So it's, it's based on the covenant with Abraham. You can think of the Noahic covenant as being the foundation for all mankind. And then on that with, with special people, Abraham and his descendants, God puts the Abrahamic covenant. And then narrowing the funnel to specifically a certain generation and following of Abraham's descendants. Abraham did not have the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law. Paul makes that clear in the New Testament. Abraham wasn't under law. Isaac did not have Mosaic law. All the descendants for hundreds of years in Egypt did not have the Mosaic law. It's not until they brought out of Egypt, going into the land, that they're given this covenant. The Mosaic covenant is made with that generation going into the land and those following, not with their fathers. And so Moses says here in Deuteronomy, the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. Don't think this is something made a long time ago that we can forget about. It's made with us. This is our, the first generation. The Mosaic covenant was divinely instituted, put there by God, and it was a rule of life. It was a rule of life. It comes through Moses. He's the mediator. He's not perfect mediator like Christ, but he is the mediator. He goes up to talk to God on the mountain. He comes down with the law, and it's to govern God's people. As they live in the land, what did it do? It regulated their common everyday conduct, taught them how to live. Specifically, in commandments, what we call the Ten Commandments here, Ten General Commandments that summarize how to live. Also, how to treat one another. That comes later after the Ten Commandments. You could say the Ten Commandments get opened up in this section here of Exodus. And then the last section of Exodus before the instructions on building the tabernacle are included, I guess, in those instructions as well, is how to worship God. So what to do to obey God in general, how to live it out with others, and how to worship God. That's a summary of the Mosaic Law. I had lots of slides breaking these all down, but can't turn into a class just on the Mosaic Law, so we've got to summarize somewhat. Who is it given to? Israel. Because there's a question, are Gentiles today under the Mosaic Law? Are Christians today under the Mosaic Law? Well, we'll come to the second question at the end of our section here on, on the Mosaic Law next week. But it's not given to the Gentiles. We know that. Write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. 
Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. Now, is all mankind under a law? Of course. How else does God hold people accountable? They're not under the Mosaic law. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 2? What's the law that Gentiles are under? Romans 1, Romans 2. The law of the heart, right? It's the law of the heart. The law of the heart that he's written upon them. He's put it upon everybody's heart that he exists. They can even see some of his divine attributes in creation. And they know right from wrong. That's the law of the heart. Every person who's ever been created that has an ability to think just knows that certain things are wrong. Murder, taking someone's possessions. That's how God can hold them accountable, even though they don't have the Mosaic law. So it's not to say that Gentiles don't have a law. It's just not specifically written out for them like God does for Israel. That's a real blessing in ancient times. You don't have to question what to do to please God and serve him. The Mosaic law revealed God's character to Israel. I'm the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So he's not one of these evil gods that, that does harm to people all the time for the fun of it. He's a holy God. He's righteous. He's just. And this becomes the character for the entire law. You can't say anything in the law is wrong because it's given by a holy God. Let's do one more slide here and then we're done for today. The Mosaic Law does not save anyone. It's a big confusion today. People think, well, if you're born in the Old Testament times, then the only way to be saved is obey the law. That's what people think. You know, thank the Lord Jesus came because now we can be saved by grace. But back then you're saved by works. Does God ever save anybody by works? No, because by the works of the law, no man shall be justified. That's old and new. It doesn't really matter. That's how God works. He doesn't do that. He doesn't save people by works. And under the law for Old Testament saints meant that they were under it as a rule of life. They followed the Mosaic law not for salvation, but for sanctification. They weren't trying to be justified by the law. They They shouldn't have. Now they ended up doing that. By the time Jesus comes, they're all teaching that, right? You want to be saved? You want to be justified? You better obey God's law. Every single one of them. They twisted it. They twisted it. Originally, it was not given for that. Never was God's purpose. It was for how to be holy now that you've been saved. Just like Christians today. You've been saved? Now, what do you, how do you live? Well, Jesus tells us how to live. And we don't turn around and say, well, I can, I can earn Jesus' favor by doing these things and then he'll justify me. That's Roman Catholic teaching. But the Bible says, Old Testament law, New Testament commands of Christ, how to be sanctified, not how to be justified. One more. Uh, the Mosaic law did not nullify the Abrahamic covenant. Just because God gave to Moses a special law does not mean that one goes bye-bye. Right? Galatians 3.17, what am I saying? What I'm saying is this. The law which came 430 years later. So after Abraham, there's 430 years. It does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. So this is the Abrahamic covenant. The law is the Mosaic covenant. It does not nullify the promise given to Abraham. Just because Moses got a law from God to give to Israel does not cancel out what God promised to Abraham. 
He couldn't be more clear here. Now, he's just saying it in passing as he's talking about Christ coming. But look, that's clear. One doesn't cancel out the other. God's got to fulfill his promises to Abraham. All right, we'll stop there. Next week, we'll look more about uh, what the Mosaic Law is doing and our Christians under the Mosaic Law.